All right, everybody, let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, 23 records for us Jesus' last public message to Israel. You always think about that last parting address. What would you say to the people that you've been around or ministering to or leading and all those types of things? We've heard it many times. And, you know, you think of George Washington on his farewell address, what he said to the nation. There's a warning. There was encouragement. There was all those types of things. Um, well, Jesus, as he's finishing up here in, in Matthew 23, uh, he's directing his, his uh, message to the leadership of Israel. He's in the temple courts. It's very public. He's had public back and forth with all the leadership, various sects of leadership within Israel. And now as the multitudes are gathered and he is there, he starts to speak in particular in chapter 23 to the scribes and the Pharisees who are the teachers of the law of Moses. And so in verses two and three, in the beginning of chapter 23, Jesus says in the midst of everybody, as he had just spoken with the Pharisees and the scribes, he said to everybody, turning away from the scribes and the Pharisees, speaking to the crowds, he said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe what they tell you, but, but not the works they do for they preach, but do not practice. So Jesus is here exposed is exposing the heart of the matter in his last farewell address. And it is the hypocrisy of the spiritual leadership of e of Israel. They were hypocrites and what they taught and who they were, were two different things. And, and so with the rest of the chapter in front of the crowds and directing it to the Pharisees, he looks them square in the eye and the Sadducees, and he pronounces seven woes upon them. And a woe is a state of utter despair and heaviness and weight. And he's saying and what, what it really is, is a pronouncement of judgment upon them. God is going to judge them. And he gives them seven reasons why, seven things that encapsulate the hypocrisy uh, and the hypocrisy being the main reason there. And, and so Jesus gives them seven reasons. And last Sunday, we went over the first three because of time. Uh, we'll, we'll finish all of them today. But uh, verse 13 was the first where he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither yourselves, uh, uh, you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So the first reason for God's judgment upon the spiritual leadership of Israel is that they, listen, a spiritual leader of God, a true spiritual leader is to be one who points people to God, not, not someone who blocks people from God. Amen. Someone who points people to God's salvation, not keeps people from it. Jesus is the door. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father except through him. And these men were to be people who pointed people to the Messiah as the means of salvation, not block people from it. And so Jesus says, you neither enter yourselves. You don't believe and you don't lead people to believe. And so number one, he points out the hypocrisy and that they were false leaders and that they blocked people from entering the kingdom of heaven. And that is just a, a horrible Horrible uh, 
thing to do. And secondly, verse 15, and by the way, verse 14, I know uh, I talked about this last week and you can check out my message from last week. Why, why verse 14 is not in Matthew 23, but is actually in Luke 20 verse 47. Check it out last week or talk to me later. Verse 15, the second woe, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Uh, proselyte. And when you when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. How would you like to be on the receiving end of all this? You know, publicly, in front of the multitudes, the people you're leaving. Jesus is leaving nothing behind. And he says, the second reason you are absolutely appear to be dedicated to the causes of God, to the greatest extreme. But here's the thing is that when you bring someone in, you know, to the supposed kingdom of God, instead of becoming Christ-like, instead of becoming righteous, they become twice the son of hell that you are. You make them twice as hypocritical as you, you are making disciples that are worse than you are of hell. And obviously we're supposed to be making disciples of the King of the kingdom of heaven. Right. But that's not what they were doing. And so he's saying here, listen, you are dedicated. You're dedicated to the wrong things and you're dedicated so much that what you multiplying is twice as worse as you are. Then he says in verse 16, the third reason, Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools for which is greater the gold of the temple that has made the gold or the, uh, or the temple that made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred. The third reason that Jesus pronounces judgment upon these leaders is because they were leading people to have a superficial and hypocritical understanding and relationship to God. And that they taught people that they could make promises to God that would be binding on the one hand if they promised a certain things and not binding on the other. Now, this is kind of semantics for us, but what they were teaching the people is that they could have a duplicitous relationship with God. Listen, God desires truth no matter what. Right? That's who he is because he's true. And so what they were doing is saying, hey, you know what? If you, if you swear by the temple, don't worry about that. That's cool. It's not binding. But if you swear by the gold on the temple, the shiny part, guess what? That's binding because that's really what matters. And notice it's the external that matters, not the heart of the matter. And then he goes on and says like, hey, the sacrifice, it's the sacrifice is the matter, but not the altar. So you can swear by the sacrifice, but not the altar. And so this is what they, they were teaching people. You know, they're tra- teaching people and their relationships with God to be deceitful. Oh God, I promised by the temple not to do this and not to do that, knowing full well that it's not binding, right? You know, or to start doing this and to start doing that. And according to the Pharisees, they would ease their conscience and say, oh yeah, it wasn't binding. What did you swear by? Oh, the temple. Oh, you're good. You're good. And so they taught duplicity in people's hearts and their understanding of God. And Jesus clears up this nonsense in verse 20 He says, so whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything in it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who sits, uh, who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and, and by him who sits upon it. 
And what Jesus is saying, listen, you can't have a hypocritical relationship with God. You can't have a duplicitous relationship with God. God is truth and he demands that we be people who walk and live in the truth. Now, Jesus wasn't promoting oath giving here. Right? He's not saying what they were doing was right. Because we know in Leviticus, it says, don't, don't do that. And he taught us in Matthew 5.37, let your yes be yes your no be no. And anything beyond that is what it's of the evil one. So Jesus just said, speak the truth, live the truth, say yes, say no. Anything beyond that, any of this weird stuff that you're teaching, it's of the evil one. But Jesus is just pointing out the hypocrisy that even in what they were doing, you know, was messed up. And so what Jesus is just saying is that these guys are superficial in the relationship with the God and they're leading those people in that the sacrifice, the altar, the gold, the temple, the throne, all of those things were significant. This church is significant. The building is significant. The reason why the things are significant is because of the one who makes it significant. You are significant. Amen. So God wants us to live in truth. Oh, only on Sunday morning. Check out, go to work. We can be different people. We can. Yeah. Anybody struggle with that ever? Yeah, so same situation, right? Well, we pick up in this morning, verse 23, with with the fourth woe. Woe. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier manners of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, Jesus points out here that they're, they're, meticulous when it comes to their offerings, the things that they were offering to God, they would make very sure that they would even go into their spice cabinet and weigh out a 10th of all their spices and give it to God, you know? Uh, But when it came to the things of great substance, the principles in the scriptures, the weightier matters that God clearly talks about the heart of the law, the heart of the law, they were totally blind to it. They neglected it justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now Leviticus 27, 30 speaks to the Jews about tithing. Uh, when they, uh, they were to give what the land produced, the Jews were to give what the land produced. And so if you were a farmer, you were to give some of that. Farmer John has done more. Well, maybe he's not, you've probably only given what, maybe a fifth of what's going on over there. No, I was kidding. 1%. Yeah. Yeah. It's, he's got problems over there. Anyways, <laughs> but when this, the seeds of the land. So you think of the seeds of the land, you think, okay, uh, you know, your, your, your cherries and your, and your apples and your cucumbers and, and all that kind of stuff, right? Whatever you're growing in your garden, so to speak, they were to give a tenth of it as an offering. But, you know, how many of you would you kind of just go to herbs? You're like, you know, you got to, what about the herbs? We always forget about the herbs. Well, they would be so meticulous in what they're doing. They go to the herbs and they pull them out, probably even to the seed of those things they would count out to make sure it was one-tenth, one-tenth, the tithe, right? And people would see them do this and go, man, how righteous are these guys? How awesome are these guys? Man, look at, they even, they worship God in the minutest little things. They were dedicated to that. But see, Jesus saw through them. He saw what was really going on in their heart. He says, listen, 
You are weighing out the smallest matters of the law, but you are missing the giant things. Justice. You are unjust. You're not merciful and you're not walking faithfully with me. You're not walking humbly before me and with others. And so those who sat on the seat of Moses, those, these guys, uh, as the spiritual leaders of Israel, they neglected the very fundamental aspects of God's character represented in the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Micah 6, 8, yeah, 6, 6 and 6, 8. Everybody kind of knows this verse or usually has heard of it. Flip over there. It's the last book of the Old Testament. So just one book left, right? Malachi actually is, but Micah 6, 8. It's actually a little further left. It's one of the minor prophets. Dyslexia. But Micah 6, 6 through 8, let me just read it for you. Ask this question as if you are this person. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What's it, how can you come before a holy God? What is what would make you acceptable to come before a holy God? Micah's asking this question. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Now, if you're a Jew, the answer is, well, yeah. Because that's what the required sacrifice was. Burnt offerings, a calf a year old, right? Well, he goes on beyond that. So, you know, he's starting to speak in hyperbole here. He says, will the Lord be pleased, verse 7, with, a thousand, with thousands of rams, with 10,000 10, rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? So obviously he's just figures of speech. Or he's just saying, what great sacrifice would please God? And obviously there's a picture of Christ in there, right? Because that is the ultimate firstborn picture. But what's going what's gonna to be acceptable to God? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? What's going to make me be able to stand before God? Any of that? Verse eight, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness or mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Same thing. The Lord's talking about with these guys. You've forgotten this. You sacrifice the burnt offerings, you offer the goat. You're meticulous when it comes to all the little things, but your heart is far from me is the picture Isaiah would say as well. King David, when he sinned before God in Psalm 51, he says, what, what am I going to sacrifice? Are you delighted in any of this stuff? No. What is the sacrifice that God desires? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. Those things he will not despise. He wants our hearts. That is the sacrifice. Well, well in what way? That you're broken before him, that I'm broken before him, that I'm in relationship with him, that I care about his heart, that my heart is for his heart. Well, what's his heart? Who is he? He's just, he cares about justice in our dealings with one another. He's merciful. He loves mercy. He loves to be merciful, not just sacrifice. 
And he desires that we walk faithfully or to walk humbly before him and with one another, righteously with one another. And so you see these men tied the right things. They were meticulous, but their hearts were far from God and they didn't walk justly. They didn't love mercy. Do you walk justly with God and with one another? Do you love mercy? Do I love mercy? Do I walk humbly? Am I walking in harmony with who he is? Not just the knowledge of it, but actually living it out. And this is the great struggle, isn't it? Think about that with our relationship with the Lord. How many of us are meticulous in certain aspects of our worship of God, whether it be, you know, hey, I auto withdraw my tie. Boom, check. By the way, I don't know anybody's doing on that end. That's none of my business. And praise God, it's not known. But auto withdraw, easy thing. Go to church every week, check. You know what I mean? You've got that, got those things down, fill in the blank, whatever the Lord puts in your heart there. But when it comes to our actual heart condition and attitudes with him and others, we're far off. You see, it isn't that we shouldn't do these things. We shouldn't offer the acceptable offering, so to speak, with the Lord. It's not that those things become meaningless, they have meaning. They have significance. They are right. They are good. But do we, are we duplicitous like these guys in that I, that you ignore the weightier matters of the kingdom. And so Jesus calls them out on it at the end of verse 23. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. (laughs) It's this great job on the spice cabinet stuff. Great. Thank you that you care so deeply about honoring the Lord and little things. And I think that's awesome. When we love the Lord and we're walking in step with him, doesn't it seem like he, even the littlest things, we, we consider them before him, right? To music or whatever it is, he just starts pricking our hearts and we kind of start, there's a sensitivity towards him. Amen. That's, those are good things, you know, and I think we should let the spirit speak to our hearts on this, but Jesus says, do both, do both. And that's important. You know, when I, when I do something faithfully, maybe in, that I do all the time and I'm, I'm pretty good at it religiously. Anybody else have those things that you're like, yay, God, I don't need to worry about this thing. But then the Lord or someone comes up to you and points out something that's not right or not going well. How many of you take that? Well, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I get defensive, you know, and I start pointing out the things that I do, right? Well, look at my spice cabinet of good deeds. Aren't you looking at that thing? Anyone else got your spice cabinet? Yeah. Look at all the mint, Dylan and Coleman, you know, just look here, check it out. I get defensive, but the Lord desires that we live entirely in his light, right? He's not satisfied with that duplicity. He wants the whole house swept clean. He wants every corner and he won't end until he does. If you, if you just, Think of his first letters to the book, to the churches in Revelation, right? In the first part of Revelation. More often than not, when he's talking to them, he says, you're doing this well. And I commend you, but this I have against you. And unless you go change this, then there's going to be consequences. You're like, well, but they're doing the first thing well. Anyone else? The Lord says, but I have this against you. Come fix it. 
Submit to me, come to me, let me help you, lest I come and take away my presence from you, lest, I, lest we break relationship and all these types of things. It doesn't necessarily mean losing salvation, that's what he's talking about, but man, you want to walk in harmony with the Lord. It's not just the little things, it's the weightier matters as well. And I know it might be flipped there with Revelation, but you get the idea. These guys were spiritually wine. They couldn't see the heart of God and all this. And so they just focused on the minute details and everybody was watching that part of them. But they ignored the weightier manners, but Jesus saw it. And Jesus gives them an illustration of the state they were in. Verse 24, check it out. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now listen, the Jews were all sitting there. They're all Jews. And so they... Like these, the two things, a gnat and a camel are unclean things. Okay. And so what he's ingesting a gnat would make them ceremonial, ceremonial, you know what I mean? Unclean, right? (laughs) And so they would go to great lengths to strain a gnat out of their coffee or whatever it was, lest they ingest it and become unclean. They would go to the greatest detail and the smallest thing. And yet Jesus says, yet you small swallow a camel. You swallow a camel, which is the largest of unclean, one of the largest of unclean animals. You can check that out in Leviticus 11. It talks about all that stuff. And this is a picture of their willingness to, to do the minute, but forgetting about the bigger thing and the laws of Moses. Blindness to those bigger things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Listen, we can get a lot of the, you know, seemingly detailed things of Christianity, right? Say the right things, do the right things, go the right places, but heart attitude. Man, we can miss. What do you think the Lord would have, have of me as a spiritual leader and you doesn't want the duplicity. So easy for us to do this. Well, verse 25, the fifth reason for God's judgment upon them. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. How many of you, when you are first teaching your kids to do the dishes, you know, I know we just throw things into the, into the dishwasher, but some of us don't have, have a luxury of a dishwasher that actually does its job. Sometimes it just doesn't, you know. The junk inside, right? And so what, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to make sure it's, you know, all the, all the major stuff is out of there so it can be clean, right? How many of you have gone to a restaurant and you're like, you, <laughs> the outside's interesting, but the inside is like, oh my goodness, what's going on there? We don't enjoy that. Well, same thing here is Jesus is speaking about the outside being shiny and pretty, but the inside having some pretty gross stuff. And in the gross stuff that Jesus is talking about here is greed and self indulgence, which was going on. And this is what he's talking to directly to them. He's saying to the leaders in front of everybody outward, you look one way, but inward, you are full of greed and self indulgence. You appear righteous on one side, but inside this is what's going on. He saw it. The word for greed. There is a word also the weed uh, word in the Greek for robbery or ravagery means to plunder others. And the word for self-indulgence means obviously no self-control. And so outwardly they appeared benevolent, but inwardly they desired to plunder people. 
This is what we, we find out so often with spiritual leaders in our situation these days is that outwardly there's something perf- there that's being professed, but inwardly they care about separating you from your money. They care about taking things from you to spend it on themselves. Right? Yeah. We see that we hate that stuff. I mean, but nevertheless, greed is a propensity in people. So Jesus is saying, listen, you appear benevolent on the outside. You appear righteous on the outside, but what's going on in the inside? You are full of greed and self-indulgence. This is who you are. These are the kind of men that are leading Israel. Two attributes that were the opposite of what they portrayed. They were basically pirates inside. (laughs) They were pirates. That's what they were. And so inwardly, they were out of control. Outwardly, they appeared to have it together. And so Jesus says to them, verse 26, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may be clean. So Jesus tells us and them that the inside must first be cleaned. What happens if you have greed and self-indulgence and all these types of things and you are appearing one way on the outside, but the inside you've got something else going on. Jesus says, you got to be clean. He says, you've got to clean that mess up, right? And we know that we can't clean that mess up. But Jesus is saying to them is you have to get that sorted out. That has to be taken care of because your outside, even though it looks pretty, it's not matching what's the inside. And what a true person who knows me, who knows the Lord is, is, is it's clean on the inside. And therefore the outside happens. That's the difference between religion, which is an outward type of appearance with an inward reality that doesn't match that versus relationship with God, which is a good tree bearing good fruit. The inside is clean. Therefore the outside shines that, 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 uh, the fruits of that, not for, so everybody can see, but to glorify God. Does that make sense? A little bit might've made it more confusing than it should have been. But listen, there has to be an inside righteousness. You have to be right on the inside. Religion doesn't work with God. It doesn't work. In the sense that if you come to church for the sake of appearances, you know, you might, it might fool all of us, but it doesn't fool God. Isn't that crazy that God can see right through us right now? If you do religious things, but on the inside, you are out of control. This is, there's a disconnect and what is needed is for the inside to become clean. The inside to become clean. Unless any of us cast a stone at you for that, we are all unclean on the inside, apart from the grace of God. Every single one of us. So some of us might have egg. Some of us might have leftover spaghetti, whatever it is on the inside, right? We've all got our 31 flavors of issues before God. But nevertheless, we all have that commonality of being sinful on the inside, but God desires to cleanse us from our greed, from our lust, from our anger, from our self-indulgence and all of that. And to give us a righteousness that is not our own, that is his. He desires to make us right. Isn't that good that God desires to make us right? And he's the one who can come in and clean. 
I love that. How many of you, when you were younger, you desired to take your car out to the front yard and you cleaned it day and night and all that kind of stuff? Anybody used to do that? Like you just meticulous. And then how many of you got to the age where I just can't do this anymore? (laughs) Yeah. And so you take it to someone else to clean it. Yeah. Well, we have the inability to clean ourselves. We never were able to clean the inside. And we need someone to detail us and and not just, I mean, to totally restore and make us absolutely brand new. And that's what God does. How does he do that? Well, Scott already said it this morning. Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. The fact that we are by nature sinners towards God means that there is a punishment coming towards us because we are in rebellion towards him. And that can't be avoided. So God has to deal with that. How did he deal with it? Well, he sent his son who died, who took death punishment in our place. That's pretty merciful. How many of you would send someone you love to die for someone that was rebellious towards you? Well, God did that for us. And so the issue of punishment was dealt with the cross, but you have to receive it. You have to believe it. And that's the work of the spirit. He convicts you of your sin, of your dirtiness inside. And you go, I can't clean myself, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross for all the junk I have in me. Come take it and clean it out. And what God does is when we confess our sin before him and believe upon Jesus, he makes us born again. He cleanses the cup. He makes us brand new. We become new inside. There's a righteousness that comes into a heart that's different than we've ever had before. There's actually a confession of the superficial nonsense that we've been living. We walk in the light and then he comes in and and the desires to do those things start to begin and they feed and they grow. And then the fruit starts to show in your life. That's how you get changed. If anybody's telling you to go to church, to get right with God, that's jumping a thousand steps because there's only one way to get right with God. And that's God making you right. (laughs) You come to him and you call out and say, I believe in Jesus. And he comes and cleanses you, makes you born again. And then those works you're doing on the outside, they flow from that inward righteousness. That's what God desires. Religion will do you no good. Then the outside of the cup will be clean. Meaning all the things we do for the Lord, gathering together as a church, worshiping him, giving, helping people, all these things, witnessing evangelism, prayer, all these types of things aren't religious things trying to appease everybody else around us, but they flow out of a love relationship with God. Where are you with the Lord? Which one of those situations describes where you are? Are you a, I'm dirty on the inside and I've got every, I've got everybody thinking I'm all clean on the outside. Or are you man cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Call it like it is before God right now in your heart right now. And he is merciful. He is absolutely merciful. It's like a good father. Come here. Let me put a bandaid on that. Not only a bandaid on it, I'll clean it and make it right. He will clean you up. And then come join the rest of us cleansed sinners. Amen. <laughs> Sixth woe, verse 27. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs 
which outwardly appear beautiful, but with it, but within are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And so you are outwardly appear righteousness to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And here he speaks to lawlessness inside outwardly. They appeared one side, but inside they were lawless. And he'll speak about what that lawlessness is in just a second. But you can, I like what uh, David Guzik says about this pastor, David Guzik. He says it was the custom of the Jews at the time of at the, at the time of that time to whitewash the tombs in the city of Jerusalem before passers Passover so that no one would touch one accidentally, thus making themselves ceremonially unclean. Jesus said these religious leaders were like these whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but dead on the inside. So if you go to Jerusalem and you are on the Mount of Olives, Mount of Olives is a graveyard. It's just a giant graveyard. There are graves everywhere and all over the place because everybody wanted to be buried by the closest, most holiest city, right? That's what you wanted to do. It's the same thing today as it was back then. And so as people are coming in, if you touched a gravestone, you'd become unclean because you're not allowed to touch anything remotely connected with death and all that kind of stuff. And so they would whitewash these tombs. And so people would know where they are because they're everywhere. Right. So don't step on it. Right. It's like opera, you know, that game operation. You're trying not to get the buzzer, <laughs> just trying to go worship God. Anyways, that's what was going on. And so Jesus is saying again to these religious leaders, you appear without you appear righteous on the outside, but, but you're without the substance of righteousness before God. And, and here's the thing, you, you know, there's nothing wrong, for example, with dressing up to honor God on a Sunday morning. How many of us kind of, you know, we, we're kind of more laid back here, more casual here, but there are denominations where people dress up with suits and ties and dresses. They got the Sunday best on, you know, you've heard, you've heard the term before and people maybe in our denomination can, or our denomination, our kind of cultural background, kind of look at that one. And we look down to it like, Oh, look, they're all stuffy. You know, they're all stuffy. Look at their, they're wearing their suits and their ties. And it's like, why don't you just kind of get hip with God? Now you notice when I say that you can see there's something wrong, right? So if you kind of think about it, what does God deserve? Our best. And so people go, wow, he deserves my best. I'm going to give him my best. Right. And so they wear their best and they give their best and all these types of things. Is there anything wrong with that? No, there's also nothing wrong with, with wearing what we wear, you know, but we show, you know, we might put our hair together. We might do all these things on a Sunday that we don't do on other days to, sh- to show him honor. But here's the thing is that we can be dressed. However we're dressed and be rotten on the inside. The Lord knows what's going on on the inside. And so I believe that you can have that normal expression of love and devotion to him in varying degrees. <clears throat> but when it's, when it's done because a person honors and loves the Lord on the inside, it's an expression of that reality not to be seen by others. That's a beautiful thing. But the danger is that appearances can be deceiving. Can they not? Can appearances be deceiving? Think of the enemy who is an angel appears as an angel of light. That's what our enemy appears as. He appears as an angel of light. We always think of the pitched fork and the horns and all that kind of stuff. No, it says that he appears as an angel of light in his ministers as as ministers of righteousness. That's how the enemy works. 
right? These leaders made sure everyone knew that they were righteous by their attire, the hand washings that they did, all these things when actuality they were unclean and the people they contacted became unclean, unclean because of them. They were like tombs of dead men, dead men's bones. In verse 29, the seventh and last woe real quickly, the final reason for judgment that was going on, that was going to come upon them. And this is the, this is the crux of it all. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous saying, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding, the blood of the prophets. Here's Jesus's final row. Well, he says, woe to you. He points out their hypocrisy and that they paid honor to the prophets by decorating their tombs and all these types of things. And if you go to Israel today, they have various tombs with decorations on them. And, you know, cause they esteem these people in the past, right? And they are, what they're doing is they're publicly distancing themselves from their forefathers who did that. The, the religious leaders who did that, that's what they're doing. They're publicly distancing. Oh, we'd never do that. If we were there, I'd never have done that. You know, never have done that. And so they built and decorated the monuments for everybody to see, to honor them. Look, we honor them. That's who we are. But Jesus could see into their hearts and he could see what they were about to do at the end of the week. And Jesus is building his final case against them there in front of the crowds in verse in the temple in verse 31, he says, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. What Jesus is saying is that you are their children. You are saying that you are their children. You're their descendants. You're like your fathers. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus is taking, talking directly and publicly to these men in front of the crowds and his disciples saying, go ahead and finish what your fathers began. In other words, he knew exactly what was in their hearts and what they were about to do. They were murderers just like their fathers. And he calls them snakes, poisonous snakes, brood of vipers. Like you're just, you're a family of snakes. And just as your fathers killed the prophets, you're going to kill me and you're going to kill those people I send to you. And that's what he says to you in verse says to us in verse 34. Therefore I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, some whom you will kill and crucify and some you will flog in your own synagogues and persecute from town to town. What Jesus is saying is after you're done with me, I'm going to send you prophets and, and messengers and, and, and wise men and all these things. So it's interesting. Jesus is God. He only God sends prophets. He's going to be sending messengers to continue the, and they are going to do the exact same thing to them as they did to him and to the prophets that God said before. It's going to be the same thing. Fulfill what your father started verse 35. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of uh, Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. What he's just doing is just started with the first murder in the old Testament to the last murder chronologically of the prophets in the, in the old Testament. He just says, listen, 
the old Testament's that was all you guys and you did it. And I'm, and you're going to kill me and you're going to, you're going to new Testament, kill all the ones I send to you. It's happening. And all that blood, all of that is going to come upon you. How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? And the answer is they're there right now. That's what's going on. In verse 36, he says, truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. As soon as Jesus declares judgment upon these men, he then starts to look at all the people that are standing there. And this is what he says to them. This is what he says to them. He takes his eyes off the leadership and he starts to speak to the nation as a whole. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. You see your house is left to you desolate. And he speaks judgment upon Jerusalem and upon the nation of Israel. And we will see in a very short time, historically that in 70 AD, Rome came in and absolutely leveled the, leveled the place. And it's at this time, Jesus speaks and says, you cast down one, you, you, you kill this, you destroy this temple. I'll raise it in three days. We'll talk about that soon. But, but he says, your house is going to be left to you desolate. I'll speak a little bit more to that. Uh, next week when we enter it, as you, I don't know, I've been reading a little bit of Josephus. Anybody else read Josephus? He goes into detail about what happens during this time. I would highly recommend it. Jewish historian, but Jesus's heart was broken. <clears throat> he cries out over Jerusalem because of the hardness of heart. He says, I long to gather you and your children. I long to bring you together, but you were not willing. I sent you prophets. I came, I'm sending you people. You were not willing. And this is the heart of God for you this morning, for everybody who's listening. He's longing to gather you to himself. Are you willing? You see, so much often of what is portrayed of God is just this heavy handed guy with a nuke button. And yes, he has the nuke button, but he's waiting as long as possible to push that button. He desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so he waits and he waits and he waits and he sends people, Christians tripping over you, telling you the gospel all the time. And he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits because he longs to gather you to himself. He longs, he longs, he longs, he longs so much more that he'll send you out Christian. He'll even send us. Amen. And we go and we share the gospel. It, but here's the reality is that he says to this, the, the people that should know, he says, but you were not willing. And there's a hardness of the human heart that will not return, that will not repent, that desires the outside, but not the inside reality. And for that, God cannot stand because he is just, he is righteous. He is truthful. Yes. He loves mercy. And he sent his son, the greatest act of mercy that the world would ever know. But if you deny the means of his mercy upon us, his only son, there's nothing left but to leave your house desolate. And that's what comes upon the world. 
And he goes in verse 39 says, for I tell you, you will not see me again. Speaking to the nation, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what this prophecy is regarding is his second coming. He immediately jumps to his second coming and he says, listen, you all aren't going to see me again as a nation until you say, blessed is the name of the Lord. See the first time the nation of Israel rejects their Messiah. The second time they are longing for him as you get into the study of revelation. Ladies, how many of you went through the study of revelation? Amen. 144,000. Who are those? Not Jehovah's witnesses, Jews. And they're witnessing and there's a massive revival and they all die. But the nation's eyes are, is, is opened to their Messiah and they are longing for his return on the second time he comes. You're not going to be seeing me again until, until we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this leads us into the one of the most fascinating pat portions of scripture. One of the fa- most fascinating portions of scripture is we come to Matthew 24 and 25, otherwise known as the Olivet Discourse, which is Jesus's extended teaching on his second coming. Jesus is teaching on his second coming and it couldn't be more fitting for the times we're living in. What does Jesus say about all of this? Where are we in all of that? What, what are we to be looking for? What's, what's going on? I think this is the part that perks us all up here and I can't wait to get into this. So next Sunday, if the Lord wills, we'll begin our verse by verse study in depth, our deep dive into the second coming of Jesus, the signs, the timing that Jesus laid out in Matthew 24 and 25. Pretty awesome. So get ready. Jesus is coming or he's bringing you to him. (laughs) Amen. All right, Lord God, thank you so much for your word. May we be those who hear these things and glean truth from it, Lord. And I pray that our hearts would come to a place of repentance and cleansing, Lord, if there's any of this stuff going on. Lord, help us to be humble in this matter, knowing full well that you are kind and gentle. And for those who are struggling and just long to repent and turn to you and are caught in all this stuff, Lord, the duplicity, it says that like a smoldering wick, you will not put out and a bruised reed. You will not break. You'll gently come and restore us. If we're willing with a tenderness that we've never known and a kindness that we have yet to experience, Lord, if we haven't come to you. And so by your spirit, draw us to you. And make us new inside and the people who are righteous inside because of you. And we ask this in the name, Father, of your precious son, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Hey, love you guys. Have a great week in the Lord. Amen.